Hallelujah. Amen. Father, this day, as we sing these songs and as we quiet our heart to receive the proclamation of your word, I pray that we would lift up our eyes to you, that the attention of our soul would be drawn to the object for which we were created, the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, exalted and proclaimed in our understanding and our confession, in our everyday obedience, our daily walk. Father, I pray this day that you would be exalted and amongst your people, and that as you are praised and lifted high in our lives, we thank you that we, by your grace, can join the voice of creation which testifies to the glory of your creative power, the heavens which declare the glory of God, the firmament that proclaims your handiwork. We thank you as we lift up these songs of praise and as we listen to your word proclaimed, that we join those who've gone before, the saints of old, who look forward to the revelation of Christ, that which we acknowledge has fulfilled in, was fulfilled in time at the Incarnation. We thank you that we join with the voices that will go after us should you tarry as you continue to reap into the storehouses of glory, the remnant from which you are calling forth every tribe, every tongue, every nation represented. We thank you, Lord, that as we lift up these songs of praise, we join the heavenly creatures that are created specifically like the seraphim before your holy presence to offer up the praises Crying out thrice holy is the wor and worthy is the Lamb who was slain all day, every day, forever, giving you the glory you deserve. Lord, as we open your scriptures today, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold more of your glory and that it would move us to offer more of ourselves as a worthy sacrifice to the praise of your name. I pray that you would equip your church through the proclamation of your word to be faithful, to proclaim the glories of God, even to those who as of yet do not have ears to hear. We also pray through the proclamation of your scriptures that you would reach the lost, that your spirit would use your word declared to awaken the dead, that you would rise from the stupor and the slumber and indeed from the death of transgressions and sins, the loss unto salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that in the near future, we might be able to baptize more in the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord commissioning more disciples to join our ranks to praise you as many years as you tarry. Thank you for your scriptures, and I pray as we open them now, you would open our hearts to receive and equip myself to proclaim them in spirit and truth to the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning we have so much to be thankful for including God's grace, gathering his saints today to open up the Holy Scriptures. I encourage you to do so with me by turning to Genesis 25. As I mentioned before, today's sermon is, is entitled To Be Continued. And two ways that title pertains. First of all, the legacy of Abraham, though he dies in our chapter today, his legacy will continue as the Lord has promised according to the covenant via his children, his lineage. But also, the story and the events, the plot, if you will, the narrative of Abraham and those who are among his household and so on, the plot will continue as well. That is to say, the story doesn't end with Abraham, but Genesis continues to record events that will unfold beyond his burial in Mechpelah in the cave next to Sarah, his beloved wife. 
The aim of this morning's message is to highlight the purposes of God fulfilled through Abraham's children. To highlight the purposes of God that, as of yet in our text, have yet to be fulfilled in many ways through Abraham's children. But we ourselves, as we will see in the course and context of today's message, I trust, are indeed fulfillment of them. The scriptures themselves describe us as the children of Abraham, grafted in spiritual lineage of what God had established through our forefather in the faith so many years before. So with this introduction, would you stand out of reverence once again for the reading of God's word and listen as the scriptures are proclaimed in your ears today. This is Genesis 25, verses 1 through 21. Here is the word of God. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokthan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokthan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Lechum, Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephra, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son, Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite east of Mamre the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Keter, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma. Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armian, of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armian. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. This is the word of God. You may be seated. There are several literary markers in our text today that indicate a shift in the account. Among them, a common phrase in Genesis, these are the generations. This appears twice in our passage today. In verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. Again, in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. And of course, implied is another set of generations in verse 1. That is, children born to Abraham's third, more obscure wife, often to our knowledge anyway, Keturah. And so this is one mark in the text. A shift is changing, and these markers of God's progress through history are noted. A reminder for you, we'll cover a few major themes of Genesis by reminder as we shift in our text to picking up on Isaac and Rebekah and their lineage. But here's one of the reminders. 
As you recall, the way that Genesis is compiled can be compared, I submit, to jewels on a chain. So the chain represents time, the timeline of God's sovereign history. The jewels represent important markers in the progress of salvation. So each time there's a pause, or you see this in the generations of so-and-so, you can see it as drawing attention to those different milestones, or God's jewels of His redemptive purposes, God's plan of salvation strung along the timeline of sovereign history. So a little bit of context for you. Now, the biography of Abraham closes in chapter 25, and we've been following the story of Abraham for some weeks. Quite a bit of Genesis is devoted to the story of this man. After a lengthy record of trial and blessing, the life of this pivotal patriarch of faith concludes in Genesis 25. Abraham's legacy will continue, however, through his family lines, as well as his legacy recorded enduring in Scripture itself, which we've been studying of late. At the end of his days, several themes which have followed his, history, his uh, life story and will accompany the ongoing story of redemption are prominent. So here's a few more of those major themes. Let me give you five. First of all, there's the unmistakable sovereign hand of God preserving His covenant promises against all odds, and it's obvious and its power is evident. That is, the sovereignty of God fulfilling the covenant promises. Man at every turn seems to do everything in his power to mess it up, and certainly the devil would undo God's plans if he could. Nevertheless, time and again, in spite of barrenness, in spite of conflict, in spite of the dangers, the frailty, and the fallenness, and the perils that attend the way of a fallen world time and again, it is the powerful, sovereign hand of God that preserves His promises. Second major point, the distinction between, or this is theme, the distinction between efforts according to the flesh and seed born through promise are featured as well. And this becomes more apparent in Galatians 4 in the future, when Paul says that there are certain children of Abraham that were born according to the flesh, or you could say this was man's best idea given the circumstances. Hence Hagar and to some degree Keturah come to mind as secondary wives of Abraham. Abraham seeking to find a way to assure the promises of the covenant in part as a testimony to his lack of faith that God will do them in his way and in his time. There's a difference therefore between the fruit of that which you pursue in the flesh, your own idea, and that which is according to promise. And Isaac, of course, represents the line according to promise. Third major theme, the stage is set in the providence of God, even through the faith-lacking sins of the fathers, for the earliest covenant promises to Abraham to be fulfilled. Abraham's calling in Genesis 12 opens, declaring of him that God would make of him a great nation, a great name, and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Genesis 25 anticipates future fulfillment of these promises, even as nations, Gentile nations, including among them, are to be born of Abraham's sons. That is to say, even of Abraham's sons born according to the flesh, Genesis 12 will be fulfilled among them. Yes, Abraham sinned against the Lord and fell short in his calling of faith, but God in his mighty works turned that which we or that which the enemy meant for evil into a, an amazing thing by ransoming from future generations of Abraham's non-covenant line people to the praise of his great name. They would be grafted in. Fourth major theme. The persistent conflict between the quote seed of the woman and the quote seed of the serpent will continue to persist 
Uh, and we see this in the lifespan of Abraham, and we see it even beyond. That is to say that there are two categories, biblically speaking. There are those who are, en- are yet enemies of the Lord, and those who are covenantally bound to him through the promise of salvation realized in their hearts. And there is tension that abides between them. This is true of Abraham's line, and this is even true of Rebekah's womb. In the next portion, which we'll study at a later time, we read this in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb, the Lord declares of Rebekah. Two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. This is a theme going all the way back to Genesis, that there will be tension, conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, but remember the promise. Through the seed of the woman, through the elect line, through the covenantal preservation of the family of the Messiah, there would be one who would be born in the future who would stomp on the serpent's head. In so doing, he would destroy Satan and his works, ultimately speaking. Those heel would be bruised in three short days in the grave. He would rise again victorious. Who is this? This is the son of Abraham, as Matthew introduces him. So that's a major theme. And finally, by way of introduction, context, and kind of big picture today, there is the birth of the significant son yet to come. Of course, this overlaps with what I just said. That again is a prominent theme in our text. The line of the covenant will continue through a miraculous birth. That's just a little background and context. And again, in short, those major themes are the sovereignty of God, flesh versus promise, all nations blessed, the uh, conflict between the, uh, the godly and the ungodly, and finally, the birth of the significant son. So let me give you a heading, and let me propose three ways which our uh, passage is divided today to help us understand a few details that we see in our text. The heading is this, the family lines of Abraham are divided according to the following. Number one, the generations uh, by Keturah, by that third wife listed at least by order in the text of Abraham. So the generations of Keturah in verses 1 through 11 are one line of Abraham's seed, Abraham's children. The second major division is the family line of Abraham is divided according to the generations by Hagar. Those who are born by virtue of the Egyptian slave woman Hagar, that would be verses 12 through 18. And thirdly in our text, 19 and 21, would be the family line of Abraham divided according to the generations by Sarah. She's the covenant bride, the covenant mother. And we see that uh, continuing through one son, Isaac, Rebekah, and eventually their children. First of all, the family lines of Abraham divided according to the generations of Keturah, verses 1 through 9. First of all, who is Keturah? Now, I wonder if you guys play Bible trivia. You know, a lot of times when I'm doing family worship in our home, I ask a question of the kids just to test their Bible knowledge. If I had asked you this question before we read today's text, uh, not counting, uh, or who is the third wife of Abraham? In other words, Abraham married Hagar, Sarah, and blank. I wonder how many of us could answer Keturah. Probably not too many, at least. I had to refresh my memory in recent days in my own study. Keturah is more obscure to us. There's less written about her. Nevertheless, she's mentioned in our text today. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, and then then we see the rest of her children. Who was she? Well, there's a little mystery about it. We're not quite sure. But she is referred to in verse 5 as a concubine, presumably of Abraham. Verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. So the generations of Keturah are the generations by concubine. What is a concubine? 
Well, it's a wife or a mistress of secondary status. The wife, the, uh, Sarah in this case, was the privileged uh, covenant uh, bride and so forth. Yet Abraham, in his weakness and in his flesh, took other, quote, wives or concubines. Among them, Keturah, which we find out in our passage here, and Hagar. So what does this illustrate to us? Well, this illustrates to us that the reason for the obscurity and less attention paid to these individuals is because they lie outside of God's covenant purposes. That is not to say that God doesn't have purposes for the generations by Keturah. He does. But those will not come to pass unless God's purposes through the covenant line of Sarah and then Isaac and Rebekah Uh, They will not come to pass unless that line continues. In other words, children according to the flesh, those who are fallen in transgressions and sins, those who have a past, a history uh, that's troubled, those who are by the world's standards or by the, the way of sins accounting, the order of things, damaged goods, if you will, they do have hope. But that hope will only come through God's covenant line, the significant son. And this is why more attention is paid to the lineage of the Messiah than to others. And this is why Keturah is more obscure in the text. Nevertheless, her sons are entered into the Genesis record, and we'll find out in due course reasons why. Notice in verses 5 and 6b the following. It says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. So this is interesting. By the laws of the Near East of the day, The inheritance had to be established by the patriarch before he died. Abraham pays attention to this, and before his 175th year, before he dies, he establishes the way that his wealth and his house, his estate, will be divided. And what he does is he makes Isaac, he designates Isaac as the sole heir of his estate. So that which he lays claim to and he owns by way of family line, renown, and legacy, and all that that represents, his flocks, his herds, his land, and so forth, all of that will be given to Isaac. The rest are basically disowned. They don't have the same claim to the legacy or to the estate, to the inheritance of Abraham. Why is this? Is this fair? Well, if we look just by earthly measurements, by worldly reasoning, we would think, well, this isn't fair at all. After all, Abraham had all of these children. Isn't he responsible for them as well? Don't we think the just thing, wouldn't we assume the just thing to do is to divide up your inheritance equally and give it to all? Well, I want to bring up a point that we noticed in the past in the story of Hagar. In the Bible, during times like these, we need to draw a distinction between revelation to someone and revelation through someone. And this is just review from a prior message. You see, God visited Hagar in his compassion and said, I will spare you. I will watch over you. I will provide for you. And God revealed himself to her by name and provided a wellspring of water and so forth to preserve her in the wilderness. This was revelation to Hagar on an individual level. I will be your savior. I will be your Lord. Nevertheless, God gave Abraham instructions to cast Hagar out, to disown her as it were. This was revelation through Hagar. In other words, God was showing by the disinheritance of the non-covenant brides and the non-covenant lineage of Abraham a spiritual reality. That there is salvation, hope, and family identity in the line of the Messiah 
alone. So the, experience, the life experience of Keturah and of Hagar and their children serves as a gospel object lesson. In Galatians chapter 4, it is clear that these can be allegor- considered as allegories. That is to say, Keturah and Hagar, wives, concubines, secondary status, disinherited, according to the laws of the day and according to this order of things, they serve to show that there is no means of hope or salvation, covenant identity that we can manufacture by our own strength, our best ideas, our own engineering. The works of the law will not accomplish our salvation. Our salvation only comes through the significant son. Now, lest you think that God was not compassionate over these other lines of Abraham, you've got to read the whole story. God will reach out through the gospel and redeem for himself, yes, indeed, a covenant people, but he will do it through new birth when those spiritually who's speaking are Gentiles or they're of the illegitimate line who are born in transgressions and sins. Yea, even you and I are indeed born again of the seed of Abraham, as it were, more so of the seed of the son of Abraham, as it were. So we are grafted in. We are adopted in to the family line of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the difference between inheritance and gifts illustrates something of the truth of the gospel. Aside from Isaac, the rest are disowned. They are sent away. Why is this? It's to show that God's grace will be accomplished through his purposes, through the covenant uh, line exclusively, which would bring Jesus Christ, the Messiah, according to God's sovereign purposes and according to his will and time. Of course, uh, we do see God's, uh, the evidence of God's compassion, nevertheless, in the fact that Abraham did indeed give gifts to sons of his comp- concubines. And these gifts could have been quite extravagant. Abraham was very well-to-do. God fulfilled his promises to make of him a great man. And yes, indeed, even a great man by the material standards of the day. Abraham had many uh, servants and flocks and, uh, you know, camels and uh, extensive holdings by the time he died and so forth. Now, there is another interesting note. Inheritance versus gifts and then an, an eastward banishment, if you will. Something else um, is notable in the text in verse 6. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. So that again seems surprising to us. Much like Hagar being cast out and sent away from the household, the covenant household, in a similar manner, the children, the offspring of Keturah, the the wife of concubinage, they were sent away as well. And notice the direction, it's eastward. This is the direction of judgment and banishment in Scripture. There's a picture here. Do you remember the direction, kids, that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden? That's correct. Very good, Theo. They were cast out to the east. What about Cain? Do you guys remember the direction that Cain headed when he was banished and he was cast? That's correct, east of Eden. This direction of eastwardness is illustrative of a sort of banishment or judgment or distance from God's covenant promises. And this is the consequences of sin and sinfulness illustrated in the text. This raises a question, and the Bible will answer it in due course. Is there any way to travel back from the east, so to speak, to the covenant promises of God? Is there any hope? I don't know if I'm standing to the east. Is there any hope for the easterly peoples to be saved? We'll find in the course of this this message, gloriously, the answer is yes, 
Nevertheless, the consequences of sin are evident even in this picture language, sending them away uh, from his son, outside of the covenant, banished from the exclusive uh, blessed line, the elect line, as it were, eastward to the east country. Now we have a sort of parentheses in verses 7 through 10, and we'll call this Abraham's funeral. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, verse 7, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Notice in verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite east of Mamre, the field that excuse me, Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. So here, it's almost like a parenthesis, and there's sort of a paradox in the record. Abraham is buried without too much fanfare in the text. Why is this the case? Well, there could be several reasons, but I suggest to you the main one is this. Abraham is one small piece in God's huge, glorious puzzle. And Abraham was not great in and of himself. He was great because God had granted to him favor. And God had changed his heart. And God had caused the seed of faith to grow into a firmly planted tree. It was God who transformed this man from one who would lie about his wife, pass her off as his sister because he feared for his own life, to one who had influence among the neighborly peoples to the point where they considered him a prince of God among them. This was the Lord in his doing. Now, though, Abraham, lest we worship him and hold him out as a hero and central to our faith, will fade into obscurity. He will be buried in a waiting place, so to speak, in Machpelah, that cave that Abraham purchased in Genesis 23, right? Where Sarah was buried. And there'll be other generations who will be buried alongside him, waiting for that day, as we have speculated in Matthew 27, where Jesus himself dies and boom, upon his death, the graves are open and the saints of old are raised, proving that the son of Abraham has power over the grave and that which Abraham placed faith in will come to fruition. But who gets the glory? Not Abraham. He's buried in a place, the sole property that he owned up until the point of his death. He's relatively, he moves to a place of relative obscurity in the record. Nevertheless, God will continue through his lineage the glorious truth of the gospel. Abraham, one small piece and a glorious puzzle. There are other things to note here in the text. Back at the cave of Machpelah, there's a touching moment. And I submit this could be considered a gospel foreshadowing. Note who buries Abraham in the cave. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Now this is interesting because Isaac and Ishmael, there will be conflict and tension between them. And as we mentioned before, that's a major theme in the text. Ishmael, generally speaking, represents the seed of the serpent. Uh, Isaac, meanwhile, generally speaking, represents the seed of the woman. Yet, do you notice what's happened at this moment? The death of Abraham provides an opportunity where Isaac and Ishmael are united in the cause of his burial. Could this be a, a, a gospel foreshadowing? Two people at odds are united by the death of the covenant son. I submit to you, in fact, this is a type of the gospel to come. That is to say, in the son of Abraham, in the death of Jesus Christ to come, people who were one time 
at odds and at conflict with one another will be reconciled. It is the death of the significant son that holds out hope for the reconciliation of the most deep, long-abiding feuds and intractable tension and differences and animosity and ethnic challenges and conflicts and wars and enmity and Jew versus Gentile distinction. It is the death of the significant son, ultimately, which will bind those one-time separated people, the seed of the serpent, uh, will be repented of, that allegiance to the enemy and his purposes, and then the grafting into the seed of the woman. I, and I believe we see a picture of this anticipated in this moment where Isaac and Ishmael are united in the death of the significant son, as it were. So that's the generations, verses 1 through 11, by Keturah. We find them listed by name, and we'll touch upon that in a moment. We find a sort of a difference in how the inheritance is doled out. We find this eastward banishment. What is happening here is a dispersion and a distinction. There's a separation among the lineage of Abraham to draw our attention to where God's promises will be exclusively fulfilled, and that is through the line of Isaac. Next we have our major point. The family lines of Abraham divided according to, we've considered the generations by Keturah, and next, in verses 12 through 18, we consider the generations by Hagar. The family lines of Abraham differentiated or divided according to the generations of Hagar. Hey, kids, who is Hagar's son? Does anyone know? Abraham and Hagar had a kid. Do you guys remember his name? Ishmael, Ishmael is correct. Thank you. There, these are the generations of Ishmael, verse 12, that telling phrase. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names, verse 13, of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Cater, Adbil, Mibsem, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages, and by their encampments, twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. In this section here, we have a record of the generations by Hagar. And this would be the generations according to the Egyptian slave woman, the other concubine of Abraham, if you will. And what would mark them? What would distinguish them? Well, it's interesting to note that they are, in fact, 12 sons. We've heard, of course, of the 12 tribes of Israel. But did you know that there are also 12 tribes of Ishmael? We see a sort of contrast and parallel between the two. Verses 13 through 16 also contain a fulfillment of the promise to Hagar herself. If we turn back to chapter 21, during her estrangement, God uh, proclaimed to her that he would have purposes through her line and through her son, and he declared to her the following. God said to Abraham, Be not displeased, this is uh, uh, because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to do, uh, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But notice verse 13, And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So in our passage today, the record of the generations of Hagar, yes, even 12 sons, the tribes, if you will, of Ishmael, it shows that God is fulfilling his purposes and promises even to the line of Ishmael. 21 verse 18, the promise is reiterated to Hagar itself. Up, the Lord says, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, 
for I will make him into a great nation. Hagar goes on to say, in verse 21 of that same passage, she chose a wife for uh, Ishmael from the Egyptians. In chapter 21, 21, he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, notice there are parallels and there are contrasts between, uh, between the son of Hagar, Ishmael, and the son of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac. In the case of Ishmael, his mother takes a wife from Egypt. Egypt, of course, representing the pagan peoples. In the case of Isaac, uh, Abraham, the father, the covenant father, commissions his servant to go take a wife from his people. You see, there's an intentionality in securing a bride. There's more at stake in the purposes of God and the obedience of Abraham in procuring a wife through the covenant son. And by this point, as we've studied recently, Abraham takes the covenant very seriously. He tells his servant, if the prospective bride will not return with you to Canaan, you're freed from your oath. No more concessions, no more compromising the covenant. Abraham has done this in the, in the past, even by taking concubines to, uh, to gather for himself more uh, children against God's promises. And now, in his elder years, he realizes this was a bad idea. Sin, in fact. And so he tells his servant, go get a bride from my people, from my kinsmen, and uh, do this according to God's purposes. And should she not be willing to come, do not compromise the covenant for the sake of a bride. But in the case of Ishmael, represents the unelect line, if, if you will, those who are outside the covenant, such is not the case. A pragmatic choice, if you will, is made by his mother who chooses his wife from Egypt. And so the lineage of Hagar continues by way of 12 grandsons. Yes, 12 sons are born to Ishmael, and so we have 12 verses 12, do we not? Later we will have the 12 sons of Jacob, of Israel, and there is sort of a conflict. There is a contrast between the 12 sons of Ishmael. In the Bible, 12 represents fullness, kind of totality, and so on. Now, there's another note in the text that marks the generations of Hagar, that is, children by the Egyptian slave woman or the Egyptian slave woman concubine. Not only will they be a strong and formidable nation, but also there will be a general orientation of them against the rest of the people or God's people. Verse 18, they, of course, the lineage of Hagar, settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He, meaning Ishmael, settled over against all his kinmen, kinsmen. Once again, this language of over against all his kinmen, kinsmen is a fulfillment of a prophecy that God had given before, that there would be enmity, much like God had declared to Eve that there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So God had declared that there would be enmity between the seed of Hagar, the uh, woman according to the flesh, as it were, and the covenant bride and her seed, uh, Sarah, and so on. And once again, we see in this that kind of antithesis or conflict, a theme that will continue, as we said, even unto Rebekah's womb. Now, there are several examples, and I don't know that we have time to study a few of these in particular, but I'll remind you of them nevertheless, and you can study them on your own time. So in what ways were the generations of Hagar prove problematic or prove a means of conflict or source of conflict for the people of God? Well, there are three examples that we could perhaps touch upon 
And each of them is with reference to the Midianites. And the first is in uh, Genesis 37, 25 through 36. And this account is sort of the Midianites versus Joseph. That is the lineage of Hagar the Egyptian, the sons of Ishmael, as it were, um, uh, presumably intermarry with the sons of Keturah. And it says in Genesis 37 that Joseph himself was sold to the Ishmaelites, to the uh, Midianites. They're the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, merchants who purchased Joseph to sell him to those in Egypt actually represent both non-covenant lines. So you see, even in the plight of Joseph himself, who is of the covenant line, this conflict between the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, and the, uh, those uh, of the Keturites, if you will, um, comes pr prominent to the text. And so the, as the history of the scriptures unfold, we see evidence of this conflict. Again, there's conflict in Numbers 31, 1 through 8, between the Midianites and Moses. This is the Midianites versus Moses, if you will. And here a Midianite is chosen to be an unrepentant one, is chosen to be the bride of a man that brings great scandal on and, uh, onto the people of God at the time. And the idol-worshiping Midianites have a great deceptive influence over the people of God, such that God gives instructions to Moses to kill them all and to declare war against this thorn in the flesh, against this uh, a thorn, as it were, against his purposes, against this, uh, these enemies of God's uh, people at the time. And then, kids, a question for you. Do you remember who the bad guys were in the story of Gideon? Do you guys remember who the bad guys were? So who were the people that Gideon fought? Does anyone remember? That's correct. I hear someone in the back say the Midianites. The Midianites versus Gideon. That record is in Judges 6, 1 through 6. Thus we have in these examples, uh, through the course of history, how God's word has played out. And again, this is revelation through the uh, lines, the family lines of Abraham. And it tells us something. That which is pursued in the flesh, that which is uh, syncretized or mixed with the idolatry of the day, that which we think will secure our hope for the future, or salvation plans that are by our own design and not by God's sovereign and exclusive purposes, they always yield hardship, trial, consequences, sin, and heartbreak through the ages. And this proved to be the case through Abraham on into the future. Here's an application for us. Fathers in the room, how seriously do we need to take our call to model according to covenant exclusive terms, godly spiritual leadership in our homes? We see where a compromise of the covenant of marriage got Abraham into trouble. We've said it before, but covenants are related to one another. One's covenant commitment to your bride is related to your covenant commitment to the Lord. And as one goes, so the other. In other words, if there's a problem in your marriage, there is indeed a problem in your relationship with the Lord. These go hand in hand. And so what has God called us to? He's called us to look to His promises, to not compromise. And even though it seems like there's, that's a great test in many cases, we are to exhibit godly leadership, not to take the world's way out. Not to think that we need to hedge our bets by agreeing with the pressures of culture, the wickedness of, our, uh, of the hour in which we live, or to, and to suspend our uh, commitment to following the Lord and to modeling that godly spiritual leadership in our homes. And as we do this, we will recognize the, that Abraham in his later years is a model of covenant faithfulness 
And we are called to look to that as an example of the footsteps in which we should walk as we seek to be faithful to the covenant. But, as, uh, but against this uh, consistency, we see also modeled in the legacy of Abraham, the fallout of covenant compromise. Thank God for His power to redeem us from covenant compromise, and I pray that He would. Nevertheless, the lineage of Abraham testifies to these truths. So here we have, uh, once again, the family lines of Abraham divided according to the generations by Keturah. Major point number two, the generations uh, by Hagar. And this brings up number three, the generations by Sarah. So these are the two non-covenant lines, the two co uh, concubines, as it were, uh, the Egyptian slave woman and Keturah, also a concubine. But as against these, we have the following in the, in the record. This is Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he told Rebekah to be his wife. When he took, excuse me, Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armian of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armian. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. I'd like you to notice, just rewinding to a note in verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. So there's something significant about the locations of the three family lines of Abraham. And we've noticed them. The first location, those of Keturah's clan, if you will, they headed eastward. They were banished by way of this kind of judgmental direction, if you will, to the east country. And of Hagar and her lineage, of Ishmael and so forth, it says he settled in Shur, Havilah, um, this opposite of Egypt, the direction of Assyria. These are areas and regions that become known for their general paganism, not having the light of God's revelation, not covenantally bound in their social order the way the Mosaic order would be to reveal through that means more of God's purposes and salvation, even through the commandments and the order of the nation. These are outside of those areas. So even the geography becomes significant. But in contrast to those two examples, where does Isaac reside? He settles in Bir Lahai Roy. This should be familiar to us. Do you guys remember, kids, I uh, hear quite a little trivia question for you again. Do you guys remember what Hagar named the well when God answered her prayer the first time she was banished? Do you remember what, what she named the well? Anybody? Oh, did somebody say, well of the living God who sees me? Did somebody say that or something similar? Uh, very good, if that was your answer. Turn back with me. Uh, to uh, chapter 16, the conflict between the children of Hagar, the child of Hagar, Ishmael, and Abraham's wife, Sarah, has kind of come to a head. Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Verse 6, Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her. Do you remember the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness? And the Lord revealed himself to her, and gave her instructions, return to your mistress and submit to her. In verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And we see this fulfilled in our text today, testified to by the 12 sons of Ishmael. Furthermore, God gives, him, gives her a revelation about what is the nature of the man within her womb. 
and how he will dwell over against his kinsmen. Verse 12, we've mentioned that already. And notice her response, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And being translated, that language there, Bir Lahai Roy means well of the living one who sees me. So who ends up dwelling in the land that is known for the sight of God, the favor of God, the well of the living one who sees me? Is it Hagar and Ishmael, ultimately speaking? Is it Keturah or her sons? No, it is indeed the covenant son. Although the Lord visited Hagar and indeed showed her his loving kindness, nevertheless, that place becomes the resident, uh, the residence of the covenant line. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahai Roy. A couple of things are illustrated by the place of Isaac's habitation. One would be a fulfillment of the language, you will possess the gates of your enemies. Secondly, it is to say this even location communicates to us that only through the covenant line will the promises of the well at Bir Lahai Roy come to pass. That is, through the child of the child of the child of Isaac and Rebekah would come the promise fulfilled to all who would trust and believe, even Hagar herself, the son, the significant son, the one born according to the son, according to the line of Abraham, Jesus Christ himself one day. He would be the fulfillment to the promise and to the faith of Hagar. Herein is a place marked by the name, the well of the living God who sees me. And so this, uh, the fulfillment of this very hope for Hagar rests upon the very family that resides in that place that she named and, that, and next, according to the generations of Sarah, are not, are not just marked by the significance of that location, but also by a miraculous birth. So again, in verse 20, Isaac was 40 when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And this reminds us of our passage last week of that story in Genesis 24. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife in verse 21 because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And notice this contrast. Was there any problem of barrenness in the camp of Ishmael? No. He had like 12 sons. Was there any problem in the, of barrenness of the sons of Keturah? No, they multiplied. But now, here we go again. In the covenant line, we have another barren couple. What is going on? Well, once again, Isaac and Rebekah would testify to this that the Messiah would come through a line marked by miraculous birth. Sarah was aged, even a hundred years old-ish, just shy of a century when her womb became fertile by the conceiving power of the Holy Spirit himself, and she bore in her old age the covenant son, the one that would hold out hope for the future, the line of the Messiah continuing. Yes, Sarah in her old age bore Isaac, but she wasn't the only one. Who would testify to this miraculous conceiving power by the Holy Spirit? Not the only one who would testify to miraculous birth, marking the line of Jesus Christ. No, Isaac and Rebekah, once again, barren, not a child between them. It's all kind of got married later in life, you know, 40 years old. And here we go again. 
my wife, the covenant bride, the one chosen, arranged by the angel of the Lord through the obedience of, of the servant going forth with the land of my father's kindred. She had one problem here, one small problem. She does not have a child. So what does he do? Does he take a concubine? He does not. Kind of interesting, isn't it? We see a growing faith, at least by this measure. Isaac, as far as I understand from the patriarchs, is one of the few who remains monogamous his whole life. One bride. A much better picture of God's purposes. A much better testimony of faith. And what does he do? Instead of reaching out for a concubine to uh, make things happen because it just wasn't happening uh, between him and his wife, he, never, he, he uh, does not do that. He cries out to the Lord. And what does God do? He touches the womb of the barren Rebekah and his wife conceives. Once again, a child by miraculous birth. This is by gospel design. Who else in the line of Jesus Christ well, their experience was marked by miraculous birth, barrenness overcome. One thinks of the testimony of Hannah. She cries out to the Lord in the temple, and what does God do? Opens her womb, and her barrenness is healed. And she cries out in a prayer that's just gloriously paralleled by Mary herself. And Mary, she has a child by miraculous conception. The power of the Holy Spirit to conceive in the womb of the Virgin, Jesus Christ himself. And she's not the only one either. But she joins the testimony of Elizabeth, her cousin, who again in her old age and barrenness becomes pregnant by the power of God's Holy Spirit with the one who would go before Jesus Christ, John the Baptist himself. Something's going on here. It might be a passing detail we could easily overlook. But with the testimony of greater scripture, we see that the generations of Sarah, the covenant bride, the covenant mother, the generation of Abraham, Isaac, is marked by miraculous birth. Are there any other markers of miraculous birth in the line of the Messiah? If you are a believer in the sound of my voice, you have experienced a miraculous birth. The scriptures call it being born again. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God regenerated you. He gave you new life. And the scriptures call this, in Jesus' own words, in John chapter 3, being born again. This is a miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit to create a new man in you. The old has gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. You yourself and your spiritual new birth can relate to the story and the testimony of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah, of Hannah, of Elizabeth, of Mary, because a miraculous birth has taken place in our own heart and in our own life. Now, last point this morning, as the story comes to a close, there is a future yet to be realized from among all of these lines of Abraham. And for this, let's turn to Isaiah 60. And we'll call this final subpoint family reunion. The generations of Sarah will be marked, are marked in our text by their location, the favor of the Lord, that's designated even the area that's for which the area in which they reside is named, miraculous birth, God providing a child in spite of barrenness. And they also look forward, this line will also look forward to a family reunion in the future. And there are five people groups that are mentioned in Isaiah 60 that actually directly tie to our text today. Notice in verse 6, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. Do you recognize those names? Midian, Ephah, and Sheba. Remember a question I asked earlier in the text? So these three, by the way, they're all sons of Keturah, banished to the east. Remember the question I raised? Is there a pathway from the east? Is there a pathway of banishment from sin back to uh, association, back to fellowship with the covenant line? Yes, there is. They shall bring good news. Well, let me back up. 
The multitude of camels shall cover you. The camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. Verse 6, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Hey, kids, question for you. Has this come to pass? So was there anybody from the east that came maybe on camels bringing gold and frankincense back west to behold the covenant promises of God? The wise men. The wise men. Thank you, Theo. That is exactly correct. Isaiah 60, verse 6, is a fulfillment of the message uh, or is a prophecy of a return from eastern banishment to come bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, yes, and we find in Matthew 2 even myrrh itself at the good news that the unifying Messiah was born, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Now, wouldn't it be cool if at least those three guys were actually from the tribe of Midian and Ephah and Sheba? You see, there's a threefold reference there. From the line of Keturah, returning back from the eastern banishment to worship the Messiah who has the power to bind the once separated through the judgment of sin peoples in sweet fellowship once again. Awesome. Verse 7. All the flocks of Keter shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. Who are these? Well, these are two of the sons of Ishmael. In our text today. We have uh, the name of Keturah, by the way, means spice. And it is speculated that the uh, vocation that represented the lineage of Keturah is dealt in spices in the east. And meanwhile, um, in, the area in, which, uh, in the area in which Ishmael and his lineage uh, resided, they were more marked by a, a nomadic people and flocks and so forth. So from the east shall come gold and frankincense. All the flocks of Cater and the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. So not only when the Messiah, the son of Abraham, is born, will there be a path of reconciliation from those banished to the east, but also there will be a path of reconciliation of those who are banished, as it were, between uh, Ashur and over by Egypt and the way by Assyria among the Ishmaelites. And the picture is this. The flocks that they once tended to and marked them as a distinct nomadic people separated from the covenant community, they will now bring those as gifts, perhaps even pictured here as sacrifices to the Lord. And it's amazing to see in the birth narrative of Jesus that he is indeed greeted by shepherds upon the night of his glorious arrival. It is powerful. In Isaiah 60, we see actually the future reconciliation power where those who were once outside the covenant and banished as such can be reunited in the Lord. Finally, in verse 16 of Isaiah 60, in the second half of the verse, it says, Upon all of this fulfillment, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Is Abraham the Savior, the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob? No. I mean, is Jacob himself? No. Jacob's sons? No. But there would be one who would demonstrate his power to redeem all peoples in such glorious manner that even before he uttered a word, in his infancy, the mere fact of the fulfillment of the covenant promises would draw worshipers from the east and would draw shepherds as a picture of the peoples once banished, now reconciled through the work of the Messiah. And saints, this is happening yet today. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, 
from people who can relate more to Keturah and more to Hagar, you and me, Gentiles, the distant corners, the coastlands. You guys, kids, remember, it's Japheth and the coastlands, right? That's the legacy of the sons of Jacob. But the prophecy was that they would be included in the tents of Shem. Shem was the covenant son, the covenant line. And this is a message all the way through Genesis, all the way through scriptures, and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So when you proclaim the gospel, when you tell your neighbor that there's reconciliation in Jesus Christ alone, you are, joint, you are proclaiming a truth and as in a line of events that was written by the sovereign hand of God that is thousands of years long and, is in, and it has been unveiled in incremental detail and is actually fulfilling the prophecies and what is laid out from of old even to the reconciliation of people's once estranged through sin going back all the way to the lineage of Abraham. The power of the gospel to reconcile a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to the praise of his great name is unfolding before our very eyes. And let us be encouraged by these truths. Encouraged to do two things. To realize that no matter how dark the days are right now, you cannot stop the mighty work of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ to gather for himself a people any more than you could write this story in history and fulfill it through the years of, of you know, against the odds of barrenness, and against the odds of war and conflict and multiple nations and people groups and empires rising and falling. None of them has been able to thwart the mighty purposes of God and they won't thwart the purposes of God now. Not famine, darkness, peril, sword, mountain height, depth of ocean. Nothing will be able ultimately to separate the people of God from that reconciliation power of the gospel, drawing them from the death of sin and from the far corners of the earth and from affiliation with the destitute and the rejected peoples into the covenant bond of relationship with Jesus Christ. This is a powerful, encouraging word. And also, this ought to motivate us to proclaim this truth to others. And as we pray, just in application, even in our context for Fred and Cindy, our missionaries to Malawi, to raise that extra, you know, 15% or so of what they need to go back to Malawi, we can pray that in something as simple and tangible as that, the fulfillment of these very words and pictures are coming to fruition and coming to pass in small ways, even through the efforts that we are partake in here. And likewise, that garage sale that you guys pitched in and all the efforts that 4,000 or 4,500 that was raised to our Ethiopian uh, missionary there and mercy and all the efforts that are going on. Once again, that has direct contact to Isaiah 60. It has direct reference to uh, Genesis chapter 25. And it's just an amazing picture, an amazing perspective. We serve a God who has been writing his story through the pages of history and is fulfilling it in our experience even now. Let that be an encouragement to you as we close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of your gospel, for the message of your scriptures, and for the fulfillment of the same. I pray that you would equip and encourage us to stand strong in a day when it's sometimes difficult by these means. Lord, I pray that you would also bless and equip the missionaries that we support in every true gospel proclaiming emissary ambassador of yours that is going forth to the nations even today to bring the message of the reconciliation power of Jesus Christ to the lost, to call them to repentance and faith in him alone. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we serve a directed Savior, you indeed are our Lord and our Messiah, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, and rule and reign over every nation, every empire of this earth. We thank you. I pray that you would be exalted, not just in this service as we close, but in the application of following, that we would live in light of these glorious truths. To the praise of your great name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.